You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Amen. Amen. I want to bring you greetings this morning from your brothers and sisters in Christ in Las Vegas. Now, maybe you didn't know you had any brothers and sisters in Christ in Las Vegas, right? But you do. God is alive and at work in our city, and it has been such a joy for my son and I to be here with you this weekend. We thank God for what he is doing here at Harvest. And I told your pastor this and even your elders this morning as we met to pray together that I, I get the opportunity and the privilege by the grace of God to travel and speak in a lot of places around the world on an annual basis. But I have never been anywhere where I felt more like I was at our church in Las Vegas than being here with you uh, this weekend. And it is such a privilege. I'm just so thankful for what God is doing here. And I believe, Pastor, that God has really knit our hearts together. And, and, and I believe God's led our churches to connect because He wants to do something by way of a kingdom relationship that would touch the world for His glory. And wouldn't it be just like God to take cities like Toronto, Canada, and Las Vegas, Nevada? Could there be any more unlikely places for God to begin a movement, but for God to do something in us and through us together that would literally touch the world for His glory? So it's been such a privilege to be here with you, especially my very first time in Canada. Now, my son has been to Canada before. Uh, We planted a church up in Vancouver out of our church a few years ago, and so he's been up on some mission teams working up with our church plant there in Vancouver, but it's my first time. So we thought, first time in Canada, what do you do? So we flew in Friday. I was supposed to have meetings Friday evening, and those meetings got canceled. And so we thought, let's just go on StubHub. We bought some tickets, and we got baptized in Toronto because we went to the Raptors-Cavs game on Friday night. Man, we bought all of our Raptors gear. We had the hats and the shirts, and we were rooting as hard as we could root, but sorry I didn't do good enough, apparently. But um, it was such an exciting atmosphere. I've never seen a fan base like that before. I mean, if that had been a game in the United States, when you're down 10, 15, 20 points into the fourth quarter in the United States, everybody leaves. By the time the game is over, pretty much all that's left are the players and the referees. But when the game ended the other night, the place was still packed. Everybody's still saying, let's go Raptors. I mean, it was just an exciting, exciting. As a matter of fact, my son, Elijah, he said, dad, I don't really have an NBA team I follow. I think I'm now a Raptors fan. So you've converted someone to the Raptors fan base. But it's been a privilege to be here this weekend. We trust the Lord uh, to move. Thank you so much for allowing us to be with you. Let me lead us in a word of prayer, and I want to jump right into God's Word this morning. Father, thank you for the way that we've already sensed your presence and worship. Lord, I thank you for this team that has led us musically to your throne. And Lord, how I just sense just being around them since last night that there's not an ounce of performance in what they're doing. Lord, it is seriously about ushering people into the presence of God. And this morning, Lord, that's really what we long for. We long for your presence. Lord, we know that you're here. You're omnipresent. You're everywhere. We know that as believers, you dwell inside of us. 
But there's something we understand in your word about the manifest presence of God. Where you show up when your people meet together and you just manifest distinctly your presence among us. So that when we leave this place, all we can say is, man, God just showed up. And Lord, that's what we ask for this morning. Holy Spirit of God, you are welcome here. And just as we sit here in the stillness of this moment, I want to invite you to just talk to God right where you are. Sometimes if we're not careful, we can attend a service like this and we can listen to other people talk to God. We can watch people talk to God, but we never talk to God ourselves. Would you just talk to him right now? And I don't know, I don't know you. You don't know me very well. I don't know what you brought in here today. But just in your mind's eye, would you just envision whatever burden you're carrying, just, just put it in your hands. And by faith, I want you just right now to just lay it at his feet. Lord, I give it to you today. Maybe it's health, maybe it's job, maybe it's relationship, maybe it's financial. God, I give it to you today. Lord, I don't want this today to be an obstacle that would keep me from meeting with you. And would you simply pray this? Would you say, Holy Spirit of God, would you speak to me today? Give me ears to hear. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I don't know when exactly I first read it, but a number of years ago, I came across a quote in a book. The man that they were quoting didn't write the book, but he was contained within the context of this book that I was reading. don't even remember which book it was, but the quote that I read that day forever changed my life. It was just one of those moments when you read something and it just really spoke deeply to my heart. It's by a man named William James, and here's what he said. I'll put it up here on the screen. He said, the great use of a life is to spend it for something that outlasts it. And I don't know where that hits you today. But when I read that for the first time a number of years ago, when I first came across that quote, the day I read it, it was like everything inside of me said, yes! That was exactly the the desire of my heart. I wanted my life to matter. I wanted to live my life. I wanted to spend my life in such a way that it was for something bigger than me. So I began to think about that and pray about that and ask God to, to, to use me like that for his glory. And on that journey of kind of praying and meditating around that idea, I came across again the opening pages of the book of Acts. And although the people in the opening pages of the book of Acts had never heard William James say this because he wasn't alive back then, the lives that they live, lived, it greatly epitomized the, the heartbeat of this statement that William James had made. If you have your Bible, I want you to open to Acts chapter 1. And in just a moment, we're going to read some verses there from this opening of the book of Acts. But, but as you read this, what we're reading is the story 
of a small group of people who were invited to join in a movement that would literally change the world. This small group of people in the opening pages of the book of Acts were used by God in such a way that their lives literally turned the world upside down. And the way that it started, it started with God calling them to launch a brand new church. Now, I know I watched yesterday the the 10-year history of your church online that you have on your website. And understand now you're about, I think, 13, 14 years old as a family of faith. So 13 years ago, your church started. You were born our church in Las Vegas this September. We turned 15 years old. So we started in 2001. So you and I both know something about church planting, church starting. Your church has a passion and a heartbeat to reproduce and multiply churches just like our church in Las Vegas. So, So we've been around and experience church planting. And I don't know how you measure church planting success. But when this small group of people were called by God and they launched this brand new church in Jerusalem, they had a grand opening. They had a launch Sunday. And on Sunday number one, Simon Peter got up and he preached the gospel. And on that day, the Bible tells us that three thousand people were born again into a relationship with God. Now, I'm not talking about 3,000 people who filled out a card or raised their hand. I'm talking about 3,000 people who fell under the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God in response to the gospel, and they surrendered the control of their life to Jesus Christ and were born again into a radical love relationship with God. Now, I don't know how you measure success in church planning, but if 3,000 people get radically saved on Sunday number one, I'd say that's a pretty good start. Amen? But that was just the beginning of the story. Sunday number two, they come back and they have their second round of services. And Peter gets up again and he preaches the gospel. And on Sunday number two, so many people got born again that they lost count. They couldn't even count everybody, so they just started counting the men as heads of household. And the Bible tells us that on Sunday number two, 5,000 men came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So here we are two weeks in, and somewhere over 20,000 people are now a part of this brand new church. Now, you want to talk about space problems. I know you know something about that. You just recently launched a fourth service on Saturday night because of some space problems. We know about that in Las Vegas. In our first 10 years, we met in nine different locations as a church. Our joke was, come if you can find us. (laughs) We were like the children of Israel wandering around in the desert of Nevada. (laughs) But over 20,000 people in two weeks? Are you kidding me? And that was just the beginning. Historians and scholars go on to tell us that within six months of this church beginning in Jerusalem, over 100,000 people in Jerusalem had been born again into relationship with God. Can you imagine? What if six months from today, we're sitting around and we're going, Pastor, can you believe it? We've had 100,000 people come to know Christ in the last six months. I mean, that'd be pretty exciting, amen? I don't think you believe that. That'd be pretty exciting, amen? You know the problem? We don't even expect God to do those kinds of things anymore. When's the last time you asked God for 100,000 people in the next six months? Here's what we've forgotten. The same God that was sitting on the throne in Acts chapter 1 that moved so mightily in the city of Jerusalem 
is the same God who's sitting on the throne today. And he is still on mission to reach the world for his glory. And he desires to use us to turn the world upside down. You want to talk about radical changing of the world? The Bible and historians go on to tell us that within 40 years of the beginning of this movement, the gospel had reached every corner of the known world. Did you know that as we sit here today in this comfortable facility on a Sunday morning, there are almost 2 billion people representing over 3,000 distinct people groups who today have no access to the gospel in their language. It means for almost one-third of the world's population, if today they wanted to know about Jesus, if they woke up today and wanted to find God and be saved, the first thing they'd have to do is learn another language. Because there's no gospel, no witness, no church, no New Testament in their language or dialect or culture. What if? What if God so began a movement this morning? What if God so stirred us this weekend that we could say 40 years from today, everybody in the world would have heard the gospel? That's what we're talking about here in the opening pages of the book of Acts. And you want to talk about turning the world upside down? Here we sit today, and we are a small part of what is almost one billion evangelical Christians around the world, and every single one of us can trace our faith back to this movement that began with this small group of people in Jerusalem. You know what I wonder sometimes about my life? Should the Lord delay His coming Another 100, 1,000, 2,000 years. And he could. It's God. He's God. He can do what he chooses, right? He's God. That goes with the title, goes with the, the office. Is the way that I'm living my life today, is the movement that I'm a part of today going to have that kind of impact a thousand years from now? Two thousand years from now? When I read and and studied and understood all of this about this group of people in the book of Acts, I began to study them, wanting to understand what was it about them that enabled them to be so mightily used of God. And you know what I found out? This was not a who's who list of leadership. As a matter of fact, if you were picking spiritual teams to begin your movement, you wouldn't have picked anybody in this group to be on your team. They didn't have much education. They had very little resources. Any of them that had resources, most of them had made them immorally. And when they came to Christ, they had to give most of that up. Probably the wealthiest of the bunch was a tax collector. And he'd made all of his money by by weighing on people and pressuring money out of them. So once he came to Christ, he had to give most of that up. They didn't have influence. They didn't have power. They didn't have place or position in society. They weren't creative. They weren't strategic. They weren't great men of philosophy. They were none of those things then what was it that enabled them? My good friend, pastor friend J.D. Greer in America said it this way, Never has a larger assignment been given to a less qualified group of people. And yet, here we sit, 2,000 years later, as a part of this movement. 
Let's read in Acts chapter 1 and let's look for some characteristics. I'm going to try to give you four of them this morning. Some characteristics that I believe we read in Scripture that enabled them to be greatly used of God to change the world. And here's what's encouraging. Every one of these characteristics we can grab a hold of by faith, appropriate that into our own life, and trust God to use us in just the same way. Let's read it. The first account, and I'm reading out of the New American Standard translation of the Scriptures. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up into heaven. After he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs. Appearing to them over a period of 40 days. And speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. But to wait for what the father had promised. Which he said you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? There have been eschatological questions and discussions all the way back to the beginning of the movement, right? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he'd said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, uh, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. Four characteristics, and obviously with this passage of Scripture we've read this morning, we could literally spend weeks unpacking this passage of Scripture. There's so much truth in here. But at kind of a 30,000-foot view, I want to try to extract these characteristics that I think we can take and, and apply into our own lives today and trust God to do a mighty movement in and through our lives. So here's the first one. They had a faith that produced obedience. A faith that produced obedience. Let me say that another way. They trusted God and they did what God said. Now, I know that sounds pretty simple. But in today's world, in North America in particular, in the contemporary church that we're all a part of, it's pretty radical. You see, we've so reduced God's movement down to strategies and formulas and ministry philosophies and programs that we've forgotten what it is just to listen for the voice of God to speak 
and then simply in faith and complete abandonment and surrender do what God said. Jesus told this group, here's the plan. I want you to go back to Jerusalem and wait. And everything is going to begin in Jerusalem. Now, we read that and we don't even think about the significance of that statement. But you can't forget the context. You do remember what had just happened 40 days earlier in Jerusalem, right? 40 days earlier in Jerusalem, Jerusalem had made a pretty strong statement about their openness to a new church plant, right? 40 days earlier, they had lined the streets, and here was their response to Jesus. Crucify him. They basically said, we don't want your Jesus. We don't want your gospel. We don't want your church. We don't want your salvation. We don't want your movement. We want nothing to do with you. As a matter of fact, if you raise your head again, we will kill you. And Jesus said, here's where we're going to go start. Jerusalem. You know what that tells us about them? They didn't make their decisions based on their opinions. Because I promise you, if they'd taken an opinion poll and said, hey, where do you want to go start our new church? If they'd passed out cards and said, everybody write down your top three choices of cities where you'd like for us to go and begin our new church. Let me tell you what one city wouldn't have made anybody's card. Jerusalem, right? Except for the smart aleck in the group, right? Who wrote Jerusalem with the big smiley face at the end, right? Like he's a, some kind of jokester. Oh, yeah, let's go to Jerusalem, right? Yeah, like that's going to work. They didn't make their decisions based on their circumstances. Because the circumstances screamed, closed door. You ever made your decision like that? Well, the door is just closed. Well, the door is just open. They didn't make their decisions like that. How did they make it? The, the Bible says they went to Jerusalem. Why did they do that? Here's why. It's what Jesus said. And when Jesus said it, they just believed it. And their actions demonstrated that because they did it. And therein is one of the reasons why I think we're not seeing God move in mighty ways in a lot of our churches in North America. Did you know that North America is one of only two continents on planet earth where Christianity is on the decline? I think we discover in this text some of the reasons why. We've lost the ability to simply listen for the voice of God. We've so figured this thing out called church, we don't need God to show up anymore. We don't need to wait on God to speak. We know what to do. We've seen every situation. We've dealt with every ministry opportunity. We've seen every one of these challenges before. We know how to handle this. Let's just get us a committee together. We'll figure it out and move on forward. And the early church said, no, we must wait and hear God speak. And when God speaks, then we do what God said. They had a faith. Now, faith demands intimacy with God. And here's why I say that. You ever heard anybody say, well, I'm not real sure what God's leading me to do, so I'm just going to step out in, what do they say? Faith, right? Hey, that's not faith. That's either foolishness or flesh. But either, ones are, either one are dangerous ways to live your life, lead your family, or lead the church. The Bible says faith comes, in, verse, in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, the Bible says faith comes by what? comes by what? You know what that means? It's not faith until you've heard God speak. 
Faith is simply my response to what I've heard from God. If I'm not sure what God is saying, listen, a lack of clarity is always an invitation to deeper intimacy with God. If I'm not sure what step to take next, I don't just step out in blind foolishness. No, I have to wait on God to speak. And I think that's one of the reasons we don't see God moving mightily. We don't know what it is as God's people to simply wait on the voice of God, to be patient, to draw near to Him, and wait on Him to speak into our lives. And then when He speaks, whether it makes sense or not, whether we can add it up on paper or not, whether the budget looks good or not, when God speaks, we just step out, trusting that He will do what He said He would do. Let me give you the second one. They had a passion that produced unity. The Bible tells us something in verse 14 about this church that I don't know that I've ever been a church, been a part of a church that had this characteristic. Listen to what it says about them in verse 14. These all, that word all in the Greek means the whole and every individual one. These all with one mind. You know what that means? Everybody in the church on the same page. You ever been a part of a church like that? If you ever find one, don't join it. You're liable to mess it up, all right? That little phrase, one mind, in the Greek language, it literally means one mind, one will, or one passion. And here's what it's literally saying. This group of people had all wrapped their hearts around the same thing. And it united them. Now, what I'm not saying is that we don't have passion. Some people say, we got passion. Yeah, we got passion in the church today. The problem is everybody's got their own passion. Some people are passionate about this particular kind of ministry. Some people are passionate about reaching reaching this particular demographic. Some people are passionate about going into this kind of neighborhood. Other people are passionate about this particular ministry program. We got all kinds of passion, but because our passion is not around the same thing, our passion, instead of uniting us, what happens in many churches is our passions divide us, but not this church. Well, what is it that they wrap their hearts around? Well, most people think it's verse number 8. Acts 1-8, we all love that verse, amen? Most of us love that verse so much, we think the first seven verses are just introduction to get to verse 8. But the real thing that they've wrapped their hearts around is in verse number 3. Look at it. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. Now, you know what this verse is talking about, right? Jesus, after his death, burial, and resurrection, made appearances to his disciples for 40 days physically before ascending back to the right hand of the Father. Now, what we're reading about here are the last 40 days that Jesus was physically on planet Earth. And the Bible tells us for those 40 days, he was speaking of the things concerning thee, say it out loud. Say it again. Did you hear it? You hear the significance of that? Jesus only has 40 days left on planet earth. Physically. 40 days of appearances with his disciples. 
that have been following him for three and a half years. And for 40 days, Jesus only talked about one thing. It's almost as if he said, if you forget everything else I've taught you in three and a half years, don't forget this. The kingdom of God. And that should not surprise us. Because in his great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, what place does he tell us the kingdom is to hold in our lives? Seek what? First, the kingdom of God. And, and, and in, the, in the Greek construction of that sentence, that's not an option that he's laying on the table. It's an imperative, meaning it's a command. Meaning from Jesus' own lips, he said to you and me as his followers, the absolute number one priority in our lives is to be the kingdom of God. That's why the last 40 days he was on earth, all he talked about with his disciples was the kingdom of God. And here's the tragedy in the church today. All we really know about the kingdom of God is that phrase. The kingdom of God. If we were to walk up to you today in this room with a microphone. Matter of fact, let's just do that. No, no, I'm kidding. Don't get nervous. <laughs> but if I were to walk up to you with a microphone and say, would you please explain to us what the kingdom of God is and why it's such a big priority in the life of Jesus? I'm afraid most of us could not even begin to do that. Much less say that everything in my life, as Jesus commanded, everything in my life revolves around the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God? Well, let me, for sake of time, just give you a definition. We've been kind of processing this for the last 15 years in Las Vegas. Jesus has just done a tremendous work in the life of our fellowship around this idea of the kingdom of God. So I want to give you this definition that we've kind of created, and I want you to read it out loud with me off the screen. You ready? God's sovereign activity in the world resulting in people being in right relationship with himself. Let's read it one more time, this time like you mean it. All right, here we go. One, two, three. God's sovereign activity in the world, resulting in people being in right relationship with himself. That is the kingdom of God. It's the big picture of what God is doing globally. You do understand this morning that as we sit here in this comfortable worship center, we serve a God who is on a mission. And that mission is so much bigger than us. God is on a mission redeeming a people to Himself. And that mission is one day going to come to a glorious end. And the Bible, as we sang about just a moment ago so beautifully, one day this thing we call Christianity is going to stop being the way it is right now because the Lord Himself is going to descend from heaven with a shout. And that in and of itself is going to make some people uncomfortable right there. But He's going to descend with a shout. And the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ are going to be raised first and then we who are alive and remain are going to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we will always be with the Lord and then the Bible describes the glorious end of all of this in Revelation chapter 5 when they gather around his throne and they sing a new song worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation Hey, 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 but do you know what the next phrase says? 
You see, we stop right there. We don't read the rest of it. You know what the next phrase says? And you have made them to be a kingdom. You know what this whole thing is moving towards? The eternal kingdom of God. King Jesus, with his redeemed people from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. And you know what we've done with the church? We've taken the church and we've made the church the goal. Not this early group. They wrap their hearts around the kingdom. The church, locally, is not the finish line. It's the starting line for the expansion of God's kingdom among every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. But we've made it all about the church. Let me try to illustrate it this way. What if you hired a construction company to build a building and a month into the project, you pull up on the job site and all the workers are working on their tools. Now, they might have the finest tools in the industry, but nobody's building the building. As the employer, I think you would probably be slightly dissatisfied with that production, right? If you agree with that, say amen. amen. You know what we've done? Jesus gave us a wonderful tool. That tool is the local New Testament church. The reason that he gave us that tool was for the expansion of his kingdom in cities and nations all over the world. And here's what we've done. We've spent all of our energies and efforts working on the tool. And we got the finest tools in the industry. We've got the best churches with the best facilities and the best staffs and the best programs and the highest training and all the resources you can imagine. But our Father is about His business of expanding His kingdom to the ends of the earth. Can I let you in on a little secret? There'll be no Hope Church or Harvest Church in heaven. Only the kingdom of God. Can I let you in on another secret? This is discouraging. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. One day Hope Church in Las Vegas and one day Harvest Church here in Oakville, one day you're going to die. You know how I know that? All churches do. They have a life cycle. They're born, they live, they die. If you don't believe me, go to Ephesus, go to Colossae, go to Thessalonica, go to Corinth, go to any of the cities that Paul wrote to these churches in the New Testament. Let me tell you what, you will not find them there. I've been in Ephesus. I've seen the ruins of the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus that Paul wrote that wonderful letter, the book of Ephesians, that wonderful New Testament church. That church is dead, but the kingdom of God is alive and expanding all over the world. This group of people, they didn't wrap their hearts around the first church in Jerusalem. They wrapped their hearts around the kingdom of God. And they said, it doesn't matter what the color of the carpet is. It doesn't matter if we have the ministry program that I like or not. It doesn't matter if we lead worship with hymns and organs or with choruses and guitars. We are about something so much bigger than that. The glorious, eternal, redemptive mission of God that is every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. They had that characteristic. They wrapped their hearts around it. Let me give you the third one. They had a desperation that produced prayer. 
a desperation that produced prayer. How many of you know that God has a sense of humor? Let me see your hand. All right. Listen, if you don't believe that, you need to. Where do you think you got yours from? We've been created in His image. Sense of humor is a part of the creation that God gave us. And some of the funniest stuff you'll ever find is in the pages of Scripture. The problem is we've read so much of it so many times that we read it with these deep uh, Elizabethan English voices, and we've forgotten how funny some of this stuff is. Look at verses 9 through 11 of this text again. These are some of the funniest verses in all the Bible, and I know you didn't get the joke because when I read it the first time, nobody laughed. Look at verse 9. And after he'd said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. See, you still didn't get it. You say, what's funny about that? Did you hear what he said? It began with this phrase, after he'd said these things. Now, what did he just say? He just said, all right, everybody lean in close. After 40 days, lean in close. Here's the plan. The plan is you're going to start where they hate you. Then, after you go there and they hate you, you're going to go to Judea and Samaria where you hate them. So we're going to start where they hate you. Then you're going to go where you hate them. Then you're going to go places. He calls it the remotest part of the earth. You're going to go places on the planet that you don't even know exist and you don't know how to get there. So here's the, get this picture. Everybody lean in. We're going to start where they hate you. Then you're going to go where you hate them. Then you're going to go where you don't know how to get there. And then he starts floating. And not just Las Vegas magic act kind of floating. I'm talking about gone. (laughs) Hey, did, did you hear what he just said? Where did he go? You think I'm making this up? Look at verse 10. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while it... What does that look like? And I believe if what happened next hadn't happened, they'd have died right there. You'd find 120 skeletons with their mouths wide open. Look what happened next. Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. Here's what happened. Jesus ascends back to the right hand of the Father. They look down on planet Earth, and they're all standing there. He says to two angels, would you go down there and tell them to move along? You say, you're making that up. Look at verse 11. They also said, men of Galilee, what are you doing standing here looking in the sky? You'll never read those verses the same way again. But everything changed with the next phrase. This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way you've watched him go. And as soon as they said that, 
Something changed in the heart of all these disciples. And they ran down off of that hill. They ran back into the city of Jerusalem. They ran up into that upper room. They shut the door behind them. And they established a committee to do a demographic study of their community so they could better know how to meet the felt needs that existed. That's not what your Bible says. No, 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 no. What they did is they established an evangelism training program where they could teach people to use the four spiritual laws to better engage with their... That's not what your Bible says. What does it say they did? They devoted themselves to prayer. Here's what they did. They got down on their knees before God. And they said, oh God, if you don't show up, we are sunk. They grabbed a hold of the altar of God and they did not let go until God did what He said He was going to do. Let me tell you why we're not seeing God move through the church in North America like we saw in the book of Acts. We don't have a desperation that produces prayer. We don't need God. I mean, don't misunderstand me. I know we know we need God. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Problem is, we think he said, apart from me, you can't do big things. Let a big thing show up in my life. What do I become? Desperate. Go to the doctor tomorrow and let him tell you, you got six weeks to live. Let me tell you what you just became. You just became a prayer warrior. Not only you, you just called everybody you know and they became prayer warriors. Why? Because you just got desperate. You know the problem with us? We're not desperate. We can do church for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks whether God ever shows up or not. Can I give you a spiritual reality that I've come to believe and I, I, can't, I can't really explain it here's a spiritual reality. I'll put it up here for you. God in His sovereignty has chosen to limit His activity to the prayers of His people. You say, explain that. I can't. Don't mishear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that God needs us. He doesn't. I'm not saying that we limit God. We don't. Here's what I'm saying. If you study the scriptures, God in his sovereignty has chosen to limit his activity to the prayers of his people. You study movements, and I've studied them, North America, around the world, and at different times in history. You study places where you see God moving in power. You dig deep enough. Let me tell you what you will always find. A remnant of the people of God crying out to Him in desperation. That's why He said, if my people will, then I will. Andrew Murray said it this way. Andrew Murray said, God rules the world and His church through the prayers of His people. 
that God should have made the extension of his kingdom to such a large extent dependent on the faithfulness of his people in prayer is a stupendous mystery and yet an absolute certainty. God calls for intercessors. In his grace, he has made his work dependent on them. He waits for them. Why are we not seeing God move in power like they saw in the early church? You got space problems? <laughs> Call it a prayer meeting. We'll have plenty of seats. They had a desperation that produced prayer. God called my family in 1999 to relocate to Las Vegas, Nevada. I was minding my own business. I was in a personal devotional time one morning. And God, through Luke chapter 4, said these words. Jesus said, I must preach the kingdom to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. When I read it that morning, it was like the Holy Spirit of God leapt off the page and pulled me down into that text and said, Son, this is for you. I went and got my wife, Christy, and we knelt down in our living room there in Memphis, Tennessee, and we cried out to God and said, God, we don't know where, we don't know when, we don't even know what, but the answer is yes. We really thought we were moving our lives to the other side of the world somewhere to plant our lives in some village or city where we'd have to learn another language and spend the rest of our lives in obscurity, proclaiming the gospel and expanding God's kingdom. Two weeks later, a mentor, pastor friend named Johnny Hunt, who pastored a church in North Atlanta in Woodstock, Georgia, called the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia. He called me and he said, Vance, our church feels led of the Lord to start a church in the fastest growing city in the United States, Las Vegas, Nevada, and God's put it on my heart that you're to be the pastor of that church. We did something that I don't teach and train church planners to do. We resigned our church where we were in Memphis, moved to Woodstock, Georgia, in preparation to go to Las Vegas, Nevada, and we never even visited Las Vegas one time. But we so knew that God had spoken definitively that if we did anything but relocate to Las Vegas, we'd be living in disobedience to God. So we spent nine months in Woodstock training with this church, getting to know this fellowship. And then they sent us out two days, uh, the week before Christmas 2000. We loaded everything we own in a green minivan and we drove 2,000 miles across the country to the other side of the United States and rolled into Las Vegas, Nevada on December the 23rd, 2000. The next week, I'm sitting in my home and my telephone rings. A woman on the other end of the line is a lady named Letty Peralta from the Philippines. Letty said, Pastor, can I tell you a story? I said, Letty, I don't know anybody in Las Vegas. You can tell me any story you want to tell me. She said, Pastor, I'm from the Philippines. I moved to Hong Kong to make money for my family that was very poor. She said, while living in Hong Kong, I met an American family and became their live-in housekeeper, caretaker, and... Over a couple of years of serving with them, that family became my family. They adopted me into their family, supported my family back in the Philippines. She said, then my American family relocated from Hong Kong back to the United States of America. And we moved to a suburb north of Atlanta, Georgia called Woodstock, Georgia. She said, while living in Woodstock, Georgia, I heard a preacher by the name of Johnny Hunt preach the gospel and the kingdom of God like I'd never heard it before. It radically changed my life. But she said, then my family got uprooted again and we moved from Woodstock, Georgia to Las Vegas, Nevada. She said, Pastor, I've lived in Las Vegas for a year and a half, and I've prayed every day that the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia, would start a church in Las Vegas, Nevada. Would you please tell me who sent you here? My jaw's hanging wide open. I didn't even know what to say. I thought we'd move there to start something, and here's what I found out. God had simply invited us to get in on something that he started a long time before we got there. 
and he was going to continue to be doing long after we were off the scene. He just invited us into it as a steward for a season. And now we're almost 15 years old. We've seen thousands of people come to Christ in Las Vegas. We were, we've seen 29 churches planted out of our church up and down the western United States. We work on four continents around the world where we're training national leaders. We, one of those is in Southeast Asia where we've seen uh, over the last decade about 1,000 house churches planted among some unreached peoples. Thousands of people come to faith in Christ. We've adopted an unreached people group in the Arabian Peninsula, a Muslim community with over 700,000 people that have no known believers that speak their language and their dialect. And we're developing a 50-year strategy to engage them with the gospel. And people will call. Almost every week I get a call from a church planner that says, Hey, hey. How'd you do it? What was your strategy? And I am not trying to be super spiritual. I'm not trying to be falsely humble. I'm just trying to be honest. One lady from the Philippines grabbed a hold of the altar of God. And she did not let go until God did what he said he was going to do. And for 15 years, we have been riding a wave of the favor and grace of God in response to the cries of one little lady. Let me ask you a question. What are you begging God for? What are you so desperate to see God do that you're going to grab a hold of His altar and not let go until God does what He said He was going to do? Let me give you the last one. I'll just mention it. We're done. Here's the last thing. They had the Spirit that produced power. Let's just be honest. There's a lot of disagreement about what happened in Acts chapter 2. All the different denominational backgrounds and church backgrounds. We differ on our opinions about what Acts chapter 2 means. And let's just be honest. We're going to get to heaven and some of us are going to be wrong. So it might as well, we might as well approach it with a lot of humility because it could be us just as well as it could be somebody else. But here's what we know for sure in Acts chapter 2. The church was empowered on that day like it had never been before. You know what we need today in the church in North America? We need a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God that puts wind in the sails of the New Testament church to engage in completing the mission of God among every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. I'll close with this quote. Jim Cimbala said, I sometimes wonder if the early Christians were around today, would they even recognize what we call Christianity? Our version is blander almost totally intellectual in nature, and devoid of the Holy Spirit power the early church regularly experienced. Everything we read about the church in the New Testament centered on the power of the Holy Spirit working in the hearts of Christian believers. Sadly for many of us, this has not been our experience. I believe it's time to return to the kind of faith we see in the New Testament church. They believed in Christ's word. They expected the Spirit to do great things. And He came through as promised. He will do the same for us today.